0: that's where we have to really think about our strong conviction we we have them for a reason and so we need to stand on them and we need to draw lines in the sand and if it means a prolonged outcome for God's plan it's okay it's going to get done in his time but it needs to be get done in the in the right way as well
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's cover-to-cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today we arrive at the historical book of Ezra, and to help us unpack it properly, we welcome to the podcast Dr. Donna Petter. Dr. Petter currently serves as Associate Professor of Old Testament and Director of the Hebrew Language Program at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She's published a number of articles and books, including a commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, which she co-wrote with her husband, Tom. Dr. Petter, it's good to speak with you. Thanks for taking the time to help us out.
0: It's great to be here. Thank you.
1: When we come to the book of Ezra, Dr. Petter, where are we in the storyline of scripture, the whole arc, and in the history of Israel?
0: Wow, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's actually a very positive time that we come to in Israelite history. It's about a hundred-year block, And it's really considered the time of Israelite restoration where God is restoring his people from years and years of sin's consequences. And so it's kind of like a, it's a breath of fresh air as it were,
1: Mm.
0: you know, in relationship to the whole history of Israel. Uh, It's a time where, where God's people, where God goes to his people and reaches out to them to bring them back to himself. So it's, actually a really rich time, even though it's just a short period of time that's covered between both the books of Ezra and Nehemiah.
1: So where are they right now in relation to exile and punishment? Because you're saying it's a positive time. Certainly it is, but it's probably, if I remember correctly, on the tail end of a not so positive time. Am I right?
0: That's right. So they were in exile for seventy years, right? As you know, so they 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 were in Babylon, and God exiled them through military means. And so it was they were going through sins' consequences. The exile was sins' consequences, and so it was a heavy time uh, for his people. But when you open up to Ezra chapter one verses one and following, immediately the reader, the listener is told of something positive because there is fulfillment of God's promises through him stirring this ruler named Cyrus. Um, And so it starts on a hopeful note simply because of a new ruler in the ancient Near East, Cyrus, king of Persia, he comes on the scene. And so his benevolence as he rules is what gives them impetus for this new phase, actually, as it were in in Israelite
1: history. Now, while Ezra may not be the longest, most complicated biblical book, there's still enough going on in its 10 chapters that could cause us confusion. So could you give us an outline of the book before we get into some of the parts? Is there a discernible structure to Ezra that we can use to help us navigate the whole?
0: Yeah, great question. And I just think asking structural questions of any biblical book is so foundational to just a complete understanding of the different parts. And so, yeah, even though it's small and there's only 10 chapters, there are really two phases that you can See as a whole. So, really, chapters one through six are the first phase, and it's considered like the first return that happens with God's people. And that takes place with the leadership of these two people named Shesbazar and Zerubbabel. So, chapters one through six talk about this first return of God's people. And then, seven through 10, there's another return of God's people, but this time it's under the leadership. Of Ezra. So it's funny because the book that's called Ezra, we're not introduced to him until chapter seven. And then so his section is really seven through 10. So one through six is one section, the first return. And then the second return is chapter seven through 10, where Ezra comes on the scene and he introduces the law to the community. So the first part is where they come back, they reestablish the temple. So it's a physical rebuilding chapters one through six and then seven through 10. I like to call it more of a spiritual rebuilding with Ezra because he brings the law. He, he brings the law to this new constituted community. And so it's, it's a straightforward structure, except for one little caveat. It's not fully in chronological order, as one might think. There's one little chapter. So one through six is all about the completion of the temple upon their return. But I'm going to say this, this is really important because chapter four, though, is a little bit of a, not a little bit, it's like a parenthesis. You know how when we stop and talk and say, oh, wait, by the way, so-and-so did this for me the other day. Well, chapter four, from a literary perspective, is just like a nice parenthesis, and it's talking about all the opposition that God's people had to the rebuilding of the temple. And chapter four just hits all the opposition from a chronological perspective in chapter four, but it doesn't fit within the broader structure. So it's a parenthetical thought about all opposition that happened during the rebuilding phase. So that's the only little caveat in terms of the structure that makes it a little bit challenging.
1: It couldn't be just that straightforward, right? There's got to be some sort of hit. Oh,
0: you are so right. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Well, let's begin right at the start in chapter one, Dr. Petter. The curtain opens on a pretty unexpected character if you're just reading through the Bible, Cyrus, the king of Persia, as you mentioned. Could you give us a brief biographical sketch of Cyrus, how God worked through him for the good of his people, and perhaps the note of hope this opening scene sets for the rest of the book?
0: my goodness. It's just an incredible, an incredible scene that takes place. So we're introduced to this Persian king named Cyrus, and he was considered a benevolent dictator. And in the book of Ezra, God uses three kings to bring about his purposes. But Cyrus is the one who was actually prophesied by Isaiah that God would use him for these very purposes that is to restore God's people to Jerusalem and to restore the city. So he's a benevolent ruler. And in order really to actually get favor within the empire, I mean, he basically took over the Babylonians with a bloodless takeover, mm-hmm. like it's, which is kind of remarkable. So the literally the international political scene changes from the Babylonians to the Persians almost overnight, as it were. And so in this, in this atmosphere, Cyrus takes the scene and as a result, He's a benevolent leader, and this produces him to set out an edict to uh, those in his empire and particularly to satisfy and appease some people, particularly the Jews. He then produces this edict to send them back to Jerusalem. So that's why he did it because of this benevolence piece, right? That's the first thing. That's who he is. And he's, like I said, one of three leaders, three Persian kings who participates, as it were. In this whole restoration phase of Israelite history. And so he then does something remarkable because it says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might come to pass. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. So those opening verses right there tell us that it is, it's more than just international politics that is at play right? It's not just, you know, the transition of the Babylonians to the Persians, but it's so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So fulfilled prophecy then, along with international politics is all intertwined. So you've got the human and the divine all working together. And so the reader of this, like the reader of these opening lines knew that it was way more than just international politics, that This change of guard, as it were, has everything to do with what God had promised his people about their restoration um, in the land.
1: So God brings his people back to Jerusalem under Cyrus by rule of Cyrus or edict of Cyrus. Like you're saying, he moves in this foreign king to release his people. He brings them back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. They start the restoration process, priests and Levites return, the altars erected, sacrifices are reestablished, and the temple construction begins. However, as you mentioned in chapter four, this parenthetical little spot in this first section, there seems to be excitement at first, but then opposition. And in chapter four, it talks about these religious people living in the land. I'm wondering if you could say a word about who they are, why was their help refused, and what was the result of the opposition, and how is it resolved? Oh, it's a great question.
0: Okay, so this is this is probably one of the overriding themes in the book. So it's the theme of opposition. Mm. And the theme of opposition begins right here in chapter four with external opposition. There's internal opposition, too, with those that marry foreign wives, which I think maybe we'll talk about a little later on. But we have in chapter four really severe opposition leading to complacency that has than stopping the work on the house of God. And so the complacency comes because of the opposition in chapter four. And these folks that are giving opposition, they are called in verse one, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. When the question is, well, then who are they? Well, it seems they're frenemies yes, on the right. one hand, right? So, right. I mean, this is kind of crazy, but these are people that likely were brought to the area from a previous exile by the Assyrians. And they are not people, and we know this from 2 Kings chapter 17 verses 24 and following, that these were people who were not exclusively devoted to Yahweh, that they were people from foreign territories, and therefore they they held views that were in conflict with views of people who were following the Lord. And so the nature of their worship was not pure. They had some maybe practices that might have been Yahwistic, you know, like the Lord's people, but they also had other religious practices kind of merged together. So these people were, in a sense, they were not at all having any exclusive relationship with Yahweh, first of all. So that's right there why the leadership put a halt to it right away because there was it's what's called syncretism they were worshiping Yahweh and somebody else Hmm. and as a result of that they were flat out rejected in the help in building now that's that's kind of harsh it sounds like oh wow really you're gonna just stop some help but because they didn't have the theological right to do it because of their faith, they were excluded. Plus also Cyrus degree, Cyrus's decree was not issued to them. It was issued, um, so, so there was on legal grounds, they really weren't meant to be a part of those buildings. And then theologically, they weren't at all qualified to be among the people of God. And it was an issue of purity. Right, uh, purity for the sake of preserving the identity of the people of God. That was the premise of this whole new community. They needed purity. They just came from exile. They they, they were in exile because of their impure religious practices. So it, it so that we have to understand that it was not a time to be neighborly, right? And hope that maybe um, the neighbors would be won back over to the worship of Yahweh and Yahweh alone. It was not a time to do that. It was a time for them to draw a line in the sand. And I know we don't like to talk about it, but, but it was a time where religious tolerance was not to be taught. It was just not a thing that they were to do. And so they put a halt to it. But the problem is that caused problems with the neighbors because then the neighbors totally threatened and they actually hindered the work of God. So much so it says that they set out in verse four of chapter 4 they set out to discourage and and more literally it says weaken their hands and weaken their hands I mean, they did just try to intimidate them and put fear in them from working on this project that God was calling them to do and so these enemies uh actually put a halt to God's God's building project for 16 years so opposition was very real at uh, the opposition was from people who you know sounded like they you know were on the same page, but they really were not. And so I, I want to highlight to you if, if if you don't mind me saying this, this isn't a narrative in Old Testament history that I think is quite remarkable because of this. You've got Israel's leaders taking a stance, an uncompromising stance against syncretism or something that's going to pull them away from the purity peace that god was calling of them and they should be lauded for their discernment i mean it was really it's, it's remarkable you don't see this happening in the pages of the old testament so they they took this uncompromising stance against syncretism and it was for purity reasons that they did it so i just want to make note of that in light of all this opposition why they did it and the nature of it was very real but but it was costly like you asked, like, like, so what are the outcome? Of, well, the outcome of the opposition is it put a pause, as it were, on the entire building project for 16 years. And it wasn't until the influence of two other prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and we read about them in chapter five, one and two, that they kind of kicked God's people in the pants and said, okay, guys, get the work, right? Do what you were called to do, right? To come back into the land. So God raised up these guys. And then the work begins again. On God's house, and it was, and and the work really was not stopped until other inquiries happened it, along the line. There was a little bit more opposition, but ultimately, there was more opposition that happened through other leaders, uh, other Persian kings. But then, when they realized that they they were legitimate to do the work there in Jerusalem, the work actually was completed and without any interference. And it was actually ended up, they ended up celebrating the temple's completion in chapter six, mm. but not without a lot of opposition, which I think is why it's so exciting to think of the restoration phase of Israelite history, because you uh, you can understand the, re- the restoration in the sweetness of it, as it were, uh,
1: only when you can really understand the opposition. I know that one of the marks of the narrative genre sometimes in scripture is that the author inspired by the Holy Spirit just lays out the story and doesn't necessarily seek to weigh in whether it's right or wrong necessarily. Sometimes the Lord comes along to right. his prophet and says, That's right, this is good or this is wrong. Is there any sense in Ezra that their stand against syncretism here? Because we're not yet at chapter seven where the spiritual restoration starts beginning. Obviously, like right. you said, this is going to happen later, but it seems as you're describing it, like this is a good thing that they did the right thing. And yet then there's this 16-year pause, which in Haggai they're rebuked for. So is there a sense in the book as to whether this pleases the Lord or if it's a mixed reaction?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. No, you know, it's so, well, the narrator doesn't let us in on that. Like we are left as the readers to have our own judgment on that. Now, it says that they were discouraged, that the the people of the land discouraged God's people greatly, that the work stopped, right? And we know the viewpoint of Haggai and Zechariah, that they needed to be doing the words, the, the work of the Lord, Right. So we know it in that we know it in the context of the prophets that God was not pleased. Right. But the narrative perspective of Ezra doesn't show that. Right. It just does not show that it just shows this is what happened. These are the facts of the story, as it were. And, and, and actually, it's interesting because when the narrator does say something to kind of give us an indication in Ezra, it's more summary statements as opposed to statements of the thing that they did was good or bad. Right now in this building phase, when we come to Ezra chapter 9 and 10, there's a few more other, there are other statements that show us perhaps um, maybe a different sentiment. But like, for example, the statement in chapter 6, we're told, so the elders in verses 14 and 15 were told, so the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah. Uh, they finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus. Darius and Artaxerxes. And so, so it's just a statement that this work was done, that they were you know energized by the prophets and that they set to work again. So it's more just fact telling mm-hmm. rather than interpreting. Mm-hmm. And he's leaving you as whoever's looking at the story of Ezra later on to put the narrative mm-hmm. together in their
1: mind. So I'm going to ask you to maybe help us do that. You're the expert. How do we understand this lesson? If there is one of being wary of syncretism in working for the Lord now. And then it seems like being aware that there may be consequences when we do take a stand for the Lord, like God's people, they were striving to be faithful to God, rebuild his temple. They drew a line in the sand. Like you're saying, said, no, we will not sacrifice the purity of our work. And it costs them. Like you said, is there anything that we can learn from that or be reminded of in our lives today?
0: I think it's such a, it's a great, thing to just really meditate and think on, right? I think that we have so many issues in culture, right, that are would be pulling us to compromise. Um, And so we we have are facing serious external opposition as we continue to build or rebuild, as it were, the kingdom of God. And so I think that we might be cautious and ask God for discernment about, you know, appealing partnerships with people, right? From, you know, this is the thing. It's like, we have to be on, we have to be alert as it were. And, and that's what I loved about the leadership. They were alert to it. And I think their alertness had everything to do because it was on the heels of sin and sin's consequences. And they wanted to do everything by the book. Right. And so for us, then we have to be weary of, you know, appealing offers for help that might be coming under the guise that is not what we're all about. And that takes discernment. It takes waiting on the Lord. You know, we need as church leaders to have a crisp discernment about the kind of help that's being offered us. I think we need to think, think through things theologically. A lot of times people will take help and they don't really realize that it's a compromise theologically because of the nature of the help that we're, you know, that we're agreeing to. And sometimes it makes you think, well, is the project more important or how we get the project done is just as important to God. And I think that's what this shows us, doesn't it? I mean, it shows us that, yeah, he he wanted the temple completed, but he wanted it done in a right way. So the decision to reject needed help in favor of keeping separate for theological reasons, I think shows a very important leadership precedent. And that's, that's timeless, timeless in terms of God's word and application of it, you know, so, He's exercise, they're exercising true leadership and it's hard and it's and so we have to do that for the sake of the gospel. We have to be exclusive. And you know what? No one likes that word exclusive. Oh, it's all about right? It's all about let's be inclusive. And so the focusing, the focus of our leadership has to be on the purity of the gospel for the sake of it. And so leading, so talk. I think the whole point of application of this for me is leading with conviction
1: Mm.
0: in such circumstances means we're going to make enemies and not friends. And it means we have to be okay. In other words, if you have the disease to please, this is not going to work for you, right? And so we have to make enemies. We might have to to be willing to live with the fact that we're going to make some enemies uh, when we say no to people. Um, And so I think that how we do so, we have to be winsome and all of that, but we have to just say no. And that's, sometimes very difficult for people. So maybe that was a little too long, but I in, in answering you, but I think that's where we have to really think about our strong convictions. We we have them for a reason. And so we need to stand on them and we need to draw lines in the sand. And if it means a prolonged outcome for God's plan, it's okay. It's going to get done in his time, but it needs to be get done in the in the right way as well.
1: Yeah. I love that reminder that you gave us that our God cares just as much about the means as the ends. Yes. how we get to the end. And ultimately, a lot of the times he is responsible for the ends. He will bring about what he wants to bring about. We are responsible to be faithful in the interim and be convicted. Like you said, I appreciate that reminder. Yes, yes. I Amen. When we come to chapter seven, so now we're over that first section into this second section of the book of Ezra. Ezra, as you mentioned at the beginning, joins the group in Jerusalem. And it seems similar to Zerubbabel, excitement is high at that moment, at that point of the book. Now, unfortunately, this again dies off in the face of opposition, but this time it isn't a helper problem, but a marriage one. It's not external, but it's kind of internal inside the camp. Could you maybe explain what the big deal is when it comes to these mixed marriages and how Ezra dealt with it? (laughs)
0: Sure. Do you have all day? Yes, absolutely.
1: A softball for you.
0: That's a softball, right? So, as I mentioned before, I think it's we have to take all of the, the, we have to take the entire theme of opposition in the context of what God was calling Ezra and the others to do. So, this represents something that's actually kind of familiar with God's. We've already had opposition, and we talked about it with chapter four, that was external opposition. And I like to distinguish this is in house, and you you just said that word. It's internal opposition with these mixed marriages but by, by the way i'd like to say that these are two great themes not just unique to the restoration phase of israelite history this is continual this is the biblical narrative right from genesis to outside opposition and internal opposition and having to deal with it right that's just that's just what it is but this is particularly this is a this is a sting in the timing that this unfolds so first of all who is at fault here these these are god's leaders these are Levites. these are these are people who should know a bit better they are the priests and the levites and these are people who have not kept themselves pure and so here here all along they've been talking about purity in the time of zerubbabel etc right and now with the time of ezra the purity piece continues and so what we see is ezra 9 exposes these lawbreakers but especially these lawbreakers who are in fact, leaders, they're priests. Okay, so that's the first thing. So right away, they this should invoke the past, like of how God's people functioned in the past. They are defiling the priesthood presently now with intermarriage through these neighboring peoples. This kind of evokes pre-exilic Israel
1: mm-hmm.
0: um when what they did with the Canaanites when they first settled right into the to the land. And so the neighboring nations, they're also itemized here, you know, Canaanites, Hittites, Parasites. It's kind of literally who's who of Israel's enemies is kind of listed there. And the whole point is this, is these were those who should have been, the priests should have been directly responsible for restoring and, and keeping pure the newly established worship community. But in fact, they're tampering with this whole process. And according then to Levitical law, These were those who should have held the highest degree of holiness among the people of the Lord. But here now they're listed as compromised. So that's the first important thing is to notice who's doing this. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they defiled themselves kind of like the Israel of old, just as their Now Here's what I think they are doing. Just as their ancestors entered the promised land and polluted themselves with the people of the land. So too, we have the exiled remnant population re-entered the land and they polluted themselves in similar fashion with obviously devastating consequences. They're repeating the mistakes of the past. And it's sad because Ezra is drawing attention to the priestly line that is doing that. So basically he calls it unfaithfulness in the camp by the leadership and it's basically when he says it's bringing guilt. This unfaithfulness is bringing guilt now to the community, and they just came out of consequences of guilt for seventy years. And now with Ezra and what he's doing and the reforms that he makes, uh, they're entering back into the old patterns yet again. They should be they should be worried about this guilt that they come under. But anyway, that's that's what they do, right? That's the first thing that they do they're mixing, they're polluting the purity of God's people, not a new thing. And the purity of God's people was also in jeopardy in chapter four. So this whole thing of exclusion is being continued. And I really want to make sure that we see that, that that line is being drawn. It's not just some new topic that's exposed there, but, but there is that exclusion that is being dealt with yet again. And what is remarkable is how Ezra deals with it so he's been told about this right people come to him to tell him about it and I I think this is where it's just so humbling it's so convicting as those of us who are in leadership in the church is first thing he does he prays he doesn't go and talk to people and get the facts he does that after but the first thing Ezra does is he upon hearing the news he 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 prays and he mourns over the sin in the camp as it were The other thing in this prayer, I think Ezra chapter nine is probably one of the most profound texts in the old testament, but when he prays, he's confessing the sin as if he was one of the guilty members. Mm -hmm. And of course he's not, but as a covenant, as a covenant mediator, as it were, he's stepping into it and bearing responsibility for the guilt in the community.
1: I look back to the old testament and I see, as you just alluded to there, they have this covenant community and the nation of Israel. And there is at times more of a, a way to talk in a corporate sense, I find. And he's praying almost corporately on behalf of the people, right? In chapter nine, like you said. Now we're in the New Testament and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Do you think sometimes we lack in the church today this idea of this corporate reality that when I hurt as a member of the body of Christ, the body hurts. And when my brother or sister is hurting, I'm hurting. We sometimes have lost that, haven't we?
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. In fact, I if you know mercy, you're going to show mercy. Mm. And so I think that because Ezra knew the mercy of God, how it was just with his people nonstop issue after issue, God was merciful to his people. Then if you, if you know it, if you've experienced it, then the response, I think for us will be to show it if you really know mercy, that's my little line, then you're going to show mercy. And so I think that that's exactly what we can learn is that Ezra's response is he has a sensitivity to the sin in the camp, particularly because of how it grieves God and it hurts everybody in the camp. And so I think that we could learn so much from the way he grieves and the way he deals with corporate sin. In Youth with Mission that I was a part of, we used to have these things called um, openness and brokenness times where we would meet as a covenantal community and you know just confess sin in the camp. And we would ask God for his mercy. And so instead of being judgmental and critical about that we were aware of God's character and how, you know, and and it brought people to their knees in confession and weeping in a place much like what Ezra 9 shows us. And so I think Ezra's really shows us that, yeah, we we need to first go to God in prayer when we see sin in the camp, but that we also can come to those that are sinning in the camp uh, with this attitude of mercy because we've received it. And so, uh, pastor Boyd, if, if we really know mercy, then we're going to show mercy to people. Mm -hmm.
1: It's been oftentimes said, we're just beggars showing other beggars where we found bread. That's it. And that is the grace of God. Amen. One of the most fascinating parts of this book, to me, at least is how God works in and through non-Israelite rulers for the good of his chosen people. I'm wondering if you could say a word about God's providence and power on display through Cyrus. Xerxes and Darius and how this can and should bring us comfort today.
0: Absolutely. In fact, that's, I think that's one of the main points of the book mm. is, is that God wants his people then and now to see that he is going to keep his word, no matter what obstacles are stacked against mm. him. And that behind the scenes, like really behind the scene of international politics is a sovereign God who is using the nations and individuals uh, for the fulfillment of his purposes. So the sovereignty of God is critical. And I think what he's calling them to do and us to do is to look at international politics and in situations that are going on in the world through the lens of the text, through the lens of God fulfilling his promises to his people. In other words, the living God is carefully planning, and he is guiding humankind's destiny in accordance with his kingdom's purposes. And he is determining the world events. I mean, when Ezra tells us, one, one, that Cyrus is coming to power, but it's to fulfill the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, th- th- he's causing us to see that it's a theological lens that we need to have for life situations no other lens is going to work and and therefore we need to think very carefully not think but we need to have that lens about our world mm. in other words we can't look at it in natural set of circumstances if we just looked at it in international politics if we just looked at it as China becoming a superpower and the U.S. becoming weakened. If we look at whatever, however we want to talk about modern day politics, it is more than just international politics. And so we, it's it's basically an invitation for us to really consider our interpretive lens. How do, what, what lens do we wear when we're grappling with life and the events that are unfolding in our world? And so Ezra invites us to, to think about that lens. What lens are we choosing to view life from? Is it a theological lens? And that theological lens that they had was from the promises from the word of God, from the prophet of Jeremiah. And so we cannot discard that lens. If we discard that lens, then we have no, I would say, proper interpretive lens to to understand the circumstances around us. And so we need then, um, as God's people, we should understand that the present events that we read about in the newspapers involving the nations of the world even as well as future events, they are determined not by powerful leaders and their strategies either for ill or for good, but by a sovereign God who's carefully planning and weeding together in tandem, these two together. And that gives me great comfort, great comfort. And so the good news is that it happens on the broad scale. God intervenes in time and space but he also does it with individuals. And so God is carefully planning and guiding humankind's destiny in accordance with his purposes.
1: Experientially, it's hard to turn the retrospective lens forward to the future, right? I can look back on Ezra's time and see, wow, God was sovereign and providential and he was moving. And I can see that as I look back, even in my own life, I look back and see God moving and caring. It's another matter sometimes to turn it into the future and trust him going forward. But we do need to train ourselves, like you're encouraging us, to look back and see that the God who has done those things in the past has is the same God moving forward. He is still working things these things together. It's interesting. I was reading that uh, in 2020, obviously a chaotic year for many people. That mm-hmm. that U version, the popular Bible app, had this massive spike in searches in 2020. And when they were asked Mm -hmm. what the most popular verses were that people were searching, Romans 8, 28 was in the top three, that he will work Mm. all things together for the good of those who love him. Mm. People are looking for this providential, sovereign care of a God who is indeed working all things together for the good of those who love him. And we see it evidenced here in Ezra. It's just a matter of turning it forward and trusting that same God with our lives in the unknown of the future, which is not unknown to him, I guess.
0: Amen. Amen. And he's going to, just like he intervened then in the time of Ezra and intervenes, in our individual lives, he's going to intervene again in the future to bring all things in alignment. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's what the hope of Ezra is. If he did it then, and he's doing it now in our individual lives, he's going to do it again in the future. And so we can trust that God's going to intervene and to move redemptive history to its completion. And he's ultimately then fulfilling the prophetic word at that point. So um, it's because he's just so loyal to his people Mm. that, that, that we
1: see that. Even so come Lord Jesus. Mm. Amen. What would you say is the main thrust of this book of Ezra? As we come to the end of our time, Dr. Petter, how would you summarize the book? Why is Ezra important? And maybe why would God preserve this text for us today?
0: So I think God wants his people to know that he keeps his word no matter what kind of obstacles. And so future generations of Israelites would really need to understand that, uh, number one. I think that if you look at the whole picture of the book of Exodus, like the big picture is, um, I think that there's a really nice biblical theological parallel with, with Exodus. In Exodus, he rescued people for relationship. And then in Ezra, he's rescuing and restoring people for relationships. So there's another uh, so it's basically God is in the business of restoring broken down relationships. And it's all about relational loyalties, his commitment to his people no matter what. And so it's another rescue mission. It's I like to look at Ezra and obviously with with Nehemiah too, but we're talking about Ezra today that it is it's a rescue mission that rests solely on the relational loyalty of God's unchanging, unshakable—you've heard the word Chesed—His relational loyalty, His covenantal loyalty that is without end. And so, in that regard, I think you walk away and go, "Wow, God is committed to people in relationship," and that just warms my heart because because He's not going to just let people off the hook. In other words, sins' consequences do come to an end and he brings restoration to us Mm. he comes even in the midst of sin's consequences to us and i find that that is just such a beautiful picture it's all about relationship he restores us to relationship to renewed worship in spite in spite of sin's consequences
1: Right. Maybe a more personal side to the same question. During your years of study of this book, Dr. Petter, what has God taught you personally through Ezra? We know that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for certain things for us to present us, the man of God or woman of God equipped. How has God used Ezra in your life to those ends?
0: Yeah. Loyalty. The piece is loyalty. I think that a verse for me that has been sort of foundational, and I just kind of parked on these verses when I was writing the commentary too. is is Ezra chapter nine, um, verses eight and nine, which kind of sums up the whole book anyway. Mm. But boy, I stopped and I paused on these verses long and hard. But now it says for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. And then I think this is the clencher for me, though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us, and I don't like how the NIV translates it. It's, it translates kindness as if it's like a m- nice little gesture, but it's, it's, hesed. he has shown us loyalty in the sights of the, in the sight of the Kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection. And so this idea that uh, he has shown us hessed or kindness uh, is something that I have thought over and over again about God's loyalty to me, no matter what. And that's that's a that's a trajectory, of course, in the biblical text. But for me personally, you know, that God is loyal to me, and He is going to intervene, and He is going to make things work and happen out there for me. Th- these are life changing things that have, well, and this has anchored me. Like I, I, I am immovable and unshakable because I firmly believe in God's loyalty in my life. I firmly believe it. And so my study in Ezra, Oh, Oh, has just reinforced it. And I have to tell you every opportunity I get, I try to talk about God's loyalty to me and to his people because of my own study in Ezra and, and this wonderful um, opportunity to, to put stuff in writing Mm -hmm. um, as well for it. So God's loyalty and relationship to me has been the
1: highlight. What a great way to end our conversation. Thanks again for all the time you've given us today, Dr. Petter, and helping us understand Ezra a little bit better. It's much appreciated.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been an honor.
1: Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible, cover to cover.